All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. Uh, once again, we are glad to have another rant session here, uh, both live and then on our newly established podcast. Uh, today we have another superstar in the making. Not making, I guess that's the wrong made. Word. Made. Made. A made. According to you only. Only according to you. Well, we were just here before we started. We were talking to Sarah about her that she's. Uh, social media famous, but I think she's famous for other reasons, is because she's one of the leaders uh, of Calaba. And one of the leaders, if you look at regional conferences, what other state chapters should emulate is the work that Sarah has done. So I do apologize. You're not a uh, leader in the making. You are an established leader. And so we're honored to have you again. Uh, what we'll do is Sarah will introduce herself besides that opening, but Joe's going to go through the logistics of Rants with Justin and Joe. Yeah, so as everyone knows, we'll be here for an hour, uh, although last time we went an hour and a half. So depending on where the discussion takes us, we'll see what happens. Uh, but a lot of the discussion is driven by your questions. And there's a couple different ways that you can ask questions. Uh, if you've got to this live, if you're listening via podcast, sorry, you missed your chance to come to the next live one. Uh, but you can ask questions via the Q&A. You can do that anonymously. Or if you want to, we can bring you on and get your audio on and get your camera on. And you can jump in the conversation like that as well. Uh, you can also ask questions in the chat box. I do suggest using the Q&A feature because sometimes it, when the discussion is going in the chat box, we miss some of the questions. So if you want to make sure your question gets answered and discussed, uh, throw it in the Q&A. Uh, rants are always free. Uh, but if you want a CEU for this, uh, you can purchase that or, and download your certificate at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. All you need to do is put in the rant into your cart, answer any questions about the keywords, and boom, you got CEUs for this podcast. Uh, the opening word is avoid, and I'm going to go ahead and put all of that information into the chat. If you're listening via podcast, it'll be available for you where you listen to your podcast. Uh, so that's, I think that's the logistics that I cover everything. Yeah, I think you did. I'm curious what that closing word's going to be since it's your, <laughs> your turn of the words and not mine. You had season one, I get season two. Yes. All right. So without any further ado, uh, here's Sarah Trotman. She's going to do a quick introduction and then we'll just get to questions and start talking about, uh, big business and ABA. Cool. Hey, so first and foremost, before I introduce myself, do I at least like get a free CE for spending my time with you guys today? I mean, like you're kind of reinforcing, but I would love it if I also got a free CE for like appearing on this rant. Is, is that part of my package deal? I mean, we can see what we can do about that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Uh, so hello, everybody. My name is Sarah Troutman, and I reside in the Bay Area in California, which is also known as like, you know, um, the seventh, like, you know, layer of hell right now during COVID. Um, it's been a pretty gnarly time for those of us in California. Joe and Justin are like, you know, five hours south of me. 
We've had wildfires here. Um, I have had uh, three power outages uh, at my house in the last week, one of them today. So I had to like pick up my, uh, one of my four kids that is on at, at the house right now and like run him down to this office in downtown Oakland to make sure that he was like logged in on time for his distance learning. So that's my life right now. I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there that are experiencing similar challenges. I founded and ran an ABA services organization, STE Consultants. Uh, for 15 years until I exited and sold that business in June of 2019. And during that time, I also served as the president of the California Association for Behavior Analysis. I was a founding board member of the Council of Autism or the Council of um, Autism Service Providers. I've served in a number of other boards. Uh, to Justin's earlier point, I love planning uh, conferences and that's been something that's been really fun for me is a you know great way to disseminate and, and share the power of our science with our colleagues. Um, and for the last year or so, I've really focused on more kind of outward facing dissemination efforts. Um, specifically, I have a company that I co-own with your guest from your last rant, Ryan O'Donnell, called On Location. And we've created a documentary that we debuted in April about the magic of Boys Town and Pat Fryman. We've created a number of different courses that deal with issues like diversity, equity, and inclusion in behavior analysis that talk about demystifying publications uh, and how to conduct more applied research. Um, we also just um, launched a, a free course and I would really encourage you guys to check it out and I can link it into the chat if you guys want me to, Justin and Joe, it's your choice. Um, uh, a video that we did based on my really good friend, Feda, um, who just uh, passed away three weeks ago and her son, Mohammed, and just talking about um, the plight of parents of children with severe autism, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and that's a, a free course that anyone can take. I think it's pretty powerful. So. Uh, I've been, you know, busy trying to create content to continue to, to challenge our field, to, to do better, and really encourage a lot of young practitioners to lean into mentorship and delve more into topics of, of interest with that for them to make them better behavior analysts. Um, and then also on the side, you know, trying to stay sane as a mom during COVID and all of the other craziness that the 2020 has brought to us. Is that a sufficient introduction? Yeah, the only thing I think you forgot is, do you remember what draft position the Golden State Warriors have? Uh, that would be, I believe that's the second or last draft position this year because that's how crappy they were this season. Again, this is like the, the fake NBA season. So you guys on the podcast can't see, but Justin's background on Zoom right now is a championship picture with Anthony Davis and LeBron James uh, for you know the NBA champs, the Lakers, um, which won – in, in the fake NBA season this year. I don't know if they'll actually give them a trophy for this year. It's kind of, you know, remains to be seen. Um, so the, whatever, the, yeah, the Warriors didn't do great, but you know, no one's gonna remember 2020. I think really the 2021 season is what I'm more focused on at this point. I guess, I guess Joe, that we should change the first word to Kobe and the last word to Bryant as uh, is what the keywords should have been. <laughs> don't confuse anyone. First words avoid, first avoid, word. avoid, avoid. avoid. I, th I think that was a, a great introduction of mm -hmm. uh, exactly who you are and the struggles that many behavior analysts, I think, are dealing with today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it, it highlights some of your experience with the topic for sure uh, today, because I think big business and autism treatment are a couple of different buzzwords that go around, but I don't think a lot of people really have a thorough understanding of what it actually means. 
and what's going on with private equity within autism intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's a nice segue into uh, opening up that conversation uh, and really diving into what does big business in autism treatment actually mean? Sure. And what effect is it having? Sure. Um, and I think to understand, I mean, first, I think it's really important to kind of understand the broader context of healthcare within the United States right now. And what we have seen happening um, in healthcare, you know, especially over the last 10 or 20 years are uh, skyrocketing costs. Um, and most of us as, as policyholders see that reflected in uh, the price of our, you know, monthly premium, in uh, the cost of the prescription medications that we have, um, in the out-of-pocket max uh, individual or, you know, family out-of-pocket max that, that we have. And so what happened, with the Affordable Care Act was an attempt to um, try to, you know, right-size some of these problems. So how do we put limitations on individual out-of-pocket maxes or deductibles um, at a, uh, for an, on an individual basis, on a family basis? How do we try to create some more regulation and limitation in terms of profits for healthcare companies? Um, how can we make some, you know, pharmaceutical medications more readily available to people? And I think, without getting like too deep into all of the policy in that law, I think we have mixed results, right? Um, we have a lot more people that are covered right now by health insurance that, that previously were because of the Medicaid expansion as a result of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and also obviously um, children uh, that have autism have benefited from this um, Medicaid expansion um, and also from all of the you know uh, autism insurance mandates that have been systematically passed in, in every single state in the US over the last you know kind of 12 or 13 years. Uh, and so what this has kind of created um, for our type of work is a tremendous amount of opportunity. And how that is manifested in behavior analysis, if you look at the data from the most recent data that the BACB has listed on their website, they frequently will post information in terms of like, hey, what are, what are certificates doing? Where are they focusing their time? And if you look at this like nice little kind of circle chart that they have, you'll see this like big section in autism, like a slightly, you know, a smaller section in kind of developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, and then all these like slivers. They're, I call them like the Weight Watcher slices. It's like, here's your like one point slice cake of like 0.5% are in, you know, gerontology, 0.002% are in this, like 3% are in OBM. So what this says to us right now is, that most behavior analysts are distributed in the autism services sector. Um, and this is largely because that is where there are jobs. Um, but we also know that the number of total certificates that uh, exist throughout the world is, is not um, commensurate to the number of people that have autism spectrum disorder in terms of being able to have services for everybody, right? I mean, autism spectrum disorder, the occurrence rate in the United States is, is one in 54, is that our current data? according to the CDC, I think it's one in 54. Yep. And right now we have what, about 45,000 behavior analysts worldwide, and then another you know, 60 or 70,000 RBTs. Um, but you have mandates like in the state of California, for example, where you have SB 946, which is a mandate that compels uh, commercial and Medi-Cal health insurance to pay for ABA services for people with autism spectrum disorder. And this mandate has no dollar caps, and no age caps. So as long as you can show medical necessity for the treatment that you are seeking, you can potentially serve a person with autism spectrum disorder throughout their lifespan. Um, 
So all of these variables and all of this information is important to keep in mind because this sets the stage for why is private equity um, and venture capital interested in autism services? And they're interested in it because there is still an underserved population. There is very strong funding that is likely not going to, to go uh, away. Um, and it's been, I think, you know, from an, I'm just speaking kind of from my perspective, obviously, this is not necessarily data-driven. I think it's been pretty easy for private equity to be able to establish relationships and buy therapy practices. Um, most autism practices are started, and mine was the same thing, are clinician-owned and founded. So I started a business, I was a clinician first, and then I learned about the business piece afterwards. And that's how most of our people in our industry have, have operated. And, you know, what has been happening in our industry is what's happening in healthcare in general, which is there's a large consolidation that's happening right now. Um, it's an ineffective service delivery model for someone like Kaiser Permanente, for example, that has the largest market share in of uh, in health insurance in California to work with, you know, 400 different providers that serve, you know, 5,000 kids. It's much more efficient and cost effective for health insurance companies to work with providers that can operate at scale. Um, because it reduces the amount of, uh, you know, administrative overhead, uh, oversight, et cetera, that they have to do in order to make sure that their um, members are receiving care. Uh, and again, so you see this in our national, you know, kind of landscape, you have like kind of the big healthcare players and they're not, more of them aren't happening. There, there are less of them. There's more and more, you know, kind of consolidation and mergers that have happened. And you see that right now in behavior analysis. So what we've seen over the last couple of years, I think, um, the BRAF group has some nice data on like the number of acquisitions. I, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but there's been a lot of M&A um, in ABA over the last, you know, couple of years. And you have larger groups that are just getting bigger. Um, and then you have a lot of kind of smaller groups where, again, it's clinician owned and it's kind of maybe a couple of BCBAs, but that kind of mid-sized group, you are seeing um, less and less of those groups as those groups are becoming absorbed. Um, by larger players or private equities coming in. And this is what happened with STE is it, uh, there was a new behavioral health company formed called Cadient Behavioral Health that my friend Lanny Fritz is the CEO of. And Cadient uh, purchased a number of ABA businesses to be able to start that foundation for them. And then what you typically see happen in, with these transactions is there'll be some type of like acquisition. And then once these uh, groups get large enough, then they start doing something just called de novo growth, which is basically organic growth that they can just kind of grow from within and continue to scale out. That was an overly explanatory. Yeah, no, no, it makes a lot of sense. And it's very clear of how it happens. I guess one of my thoughts with it, and I, you know, I always get like uh, cringes when I hear big business and profits, I guess it's just not who I am, is uh, we give away a lot of things for free and don't expect much money. Uh, but I, I guess, what are your thoughts? It seems like a lot of times today, people are going in and starting companies uh, just to get uh, bought out by these big businesses. And unlike your company where you were an expert, you had it for 10 years. 15. 15, sorry, 15, leader in the field, right? Uh, and then, and then sold, I see newbies coming in with that goal in five years are going to be brought, bought out yes. and have like two years of experience. I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Is that an accurate reflection of what you might be seeing? Yeah, a, I, I think, you know, when we were, I mean, because I'm a little older than you guys, but we're all kind of in the same area. I mean, when I first started STE, just to give some context, 
we were funded completely by the California Department of Education. We were a non-public agency or the regional center system in California. There was no healthcare funding available for autism that didn't exist. And we worked with um, a really great California autism advocate, Kristen Jacobson, to take uh, 11 or 12 kids through independent medical review to fight health insurance companies prior to our mandate getting passed in California to compel them to pay for ABA. And so we were part of that kind of like first wave and that pressure to say like, listen, this is a medically necessary service because what this enabled families to be able to access is, you know, instead of like the floor of care, which is what FAPE is in the public education setting, medical necessity is a ceiling. And so this offered incredible opportunity for families to really be able to get a higher volume of hours for their kids, um, which was much more aligned with what our research says is best practice in terms of dosage. Uh, and, and so that was really exciting, but like none of these things existed when I started SDE. My thing was just like, Hey, I love this kind of work. I think that I can really, you know, make an impact positively. Um, plus I have an entrepreneurial spirit. So like, let me figure this out. It was never like, Oh, I'm getting into this specifically because I want to look for that exit and see if I can get that multiple as high as possible. Like that just wasn't, that just wasn't part of our reality, you know, when I was first getting into the field and I started my company in 2004. Um, for many people listening on that call, they were likely in elementary school. This is, I'm old. I don't know what else to tell you about it. So to your question, Justin, and also I noticed that Brittany posted um, a question kind of like saying like, hey, where's quality of care in this uh, exclamation or question mark? Um, I, I, I don't think fundamentally there is something wrong with looking at starting something with an idea that you want to exit it at some point and whether that is autism services or, or some other type of business this, this is something that commonly occurs people don't necessarily do things forever and what i've definitely noticed that has changed in terms of how people view work and where i think there's some like generational differences is i think a lot of younger people now whether you want to call them millennials or whatever the generation after that is, is that generation z are we going to start getting into like generation like Z point A? I, I don't know. Um, but there's a, a different attitude in terms of like career, how long you spend doing something, what you're interested in. It's you don't do things for like the lifetime as much anymore. That's that's kind of an older you know kind of work value. Um, so to think that there are people in our field that are understanding the connection between, gosh, I want to do something where I feel like there's something meaningfully that I can contribute and, and I can have a positive effect in people's lives. Plus I understand that there's a market for this. And if I do this right, I might have the opportunity to generate, you know, wealth for myself. Um, I mean, that's, that's the American way, right? Um, where this becomes complex is when that wealth that you're generating is on the backs of very vulnerable people that have very specific um, needs um, that are generally, you know, within family systems that are very, very vulnerable. Um, they're vulnerable to higher rates of divorce. They're vulnerable to higher rates of mental health disorders. They're vulnerable to higher rates of, of poverty. And I think, you know, like all things in life, uh, the devil is in the details. Um, if you start an ABA therapy practice or organization, whatever you want to call it, um, and your only focus is how can I scale this as quickly as possible? Um, and run it as mo the most profitably as possible so I can make the biggest nut at the end of this game, I would say do that in a different industry. Don't do it with, you know, children and families that are literally desperate for effective intervention. Um,
But for people that are like, gosh, I really want to make a quality business where, you know, we are using the best of our science and continually asking questions and, and having kind of, um, you know, that skeptical eye on, on how we arrange our treatment to be able to allow families and individuals with autism to obtain the highest quality of life that, that they can and to really work on behaviors of social significance that really help that family system and help those people. Um, and in the meantime, if we're able to you know, obviously you need to operate in profitably for the most part or else you can't have a business. And that's something that I, I think people fundamentally disagree or not disagree, but don't always understand in autism services. You don't need to be a martyr here because if you have a crappy business model, you're not going to be able to, either you're serving kids well, you won't be able to continue to serve them. So that's not helpful to think that, you know, we need to all be paupers uh, and barely scraping by um, because like this is, you know, this is our plight in life because we serve vulnerable people. I also think that that's wrong because then you are running the risk of going out of business and then what is happening to those families that you're serving, right? Um, but I do, I do think that if there is just that sole focus that the only thing that's important are our profits, then that is, that's not where my values are personally. And I think that Justin, I think that that's kind of what you're saying more is like, hey, I'm concerned that this is kind of like the only prevailing thought. And then how do we make sure that people are thinking about these other, you know, issues that should always take more precedence, which is the quality of life, the quality of intervention, and the fact that we are working with this, this population um, and the families that, again, are, are so vulnerable and they deserve more. Yeah, uh, first of all, you're bringing up your age, and I want to say that you might be older in terms of age, but you're a lot younger than I am. Uh, mentally. Oh yeah, because you're my favorite. You're my you're my youngest curmudgeon. Yeah, that's what I call it. That's people. I know this. Yeah. You can't mm -hmm. wait. I can be old enough to sit out my uh, front lawn and say, "Get off my lawn!" To it's <laughs> my lifelong goal. Yeah, I think I think this is brought up. I remember there's a time uh, Joe and I were at a conference together, and we were listening to something, and then we left to go get lunch, and we were just talking about how easy it would be just to open. Uh, a really crappy company yep. and really crap work and have no qualifications of our staff provide scant training and become really profitable and that in a couple of years we could sell it out and I think that's my concern obviously I think people need to make a living and should have a good living and quality of life and I think that's American dream I think it's a dream probably in a lot of countries internationally internationally as well but I'm, I guess for me it's always worried that people are making sacrifices on what they're training and how they're teaching. And I, as you said, I think that just goes into the, the wrong uh, frame of mind and in going into this and you could go make a profit elsewhere if that's occurring. Yeah, I mean, let me be clear, you know, I mean, I was able to, to sell my business. Was STE like hugely profitable? No. Um, why was that? Part of that was because we operated in the most expensive area in the country. San Francisco Bay Area were, was where the majority of our services were, which means that we had the highest wages um, in the country and our you know, reimbursement rates were not necessarily reflective of the, the cost of living and the cost of rendering services. But also part of it was because we had a very large um, training piece to what we did in terms of the types of training um, that we would make everyone go through and every position of the company um, that really extended, you know, whatever the, the requirements are. And, and this is something the three of us have talked about ad nauseum, you know, this idea that you, you know, I'm a board certified behavior analyst. I've, I've been a BCBA for 16 years and I'm very proud of that. Um, but that that is a, a minimum competency credential, which they identify on their own website. They're like, hey, this is, this is the minimum standard. This is not 
again, not the ceiling, this is a floor, so it's an entry-level credential. Um, but the way that our autism legislation has treated our credential is that that's the, that is what unlocks um, the highest billable codes. So the, you know, and that's where I think big business, I mean, they're, they're doing these, they're running these equations, right? Like, okay, I need to, if I want to build this code, I need to have X number of BCBAs. I need to have X number of RBTs. And within that BCBA designation, um, there's no sub designations of like, oh gosh, this is someone that is more um, of a senior BCBA. This is someone that has a subspecialty. Um, this is someone, you know, that has shown that they have like a proven track record because those mechanisms don't exist yet in our field. And so part of what we're dealing with right now is that we've had this like rapid growth. And Jim Carr always uses these great comparative slides looking at the growth trajectory of behavior analysts relative to other allied professions. So uh, speech therapy and occupational therapy. And the way you see those, the kind of, you know, the, where the data is and the trend is like, you know, other professions, it's like this kind of steady growth. And like for behavior analysis, it's like Mount Everest. Um, and so what we're experiencing right now in our industry is for lack of a better term, growing pains. We've grown really fast. There continues to be, you know, a huge demand for behavior analytic services because, you know, this has been the most effective treatment modality to serve and help um, people on the autism spectrum. Um, but we're seeing our field become, you know, kind of younger and younger as uh, more people are, are getting interested in this. Um, and also just because, uh, again, that demand, you know, the demand has increased and so um, the supply needs to increase and, and, and we're seeing that, but that creates, um, I think, some really big vulnerabilities. And, and I think now we're trying to figure out like, so what is the infrastructure that we need to have in place within our discipline to account for those and support that? So, you know, to your point, Justin, I mean, it might be something like, do you have, you know, do you have subspecialties within behavior analysis? And then um, do you align that with legislation uh, in terms of people that are practicing with persons with autism need to have that autism subspecialty just like you would in like a medical practice. If you are an OBGYN or if you're in orthopedics, you have that subspecialty within that area. And that's something that you've worked at very specifically. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just throwing this out. These are ideas. You know, do you have like the organizational accreditation? Um, do you have more regulation? And there's really going to be people that are feel strongly one way or another, right? Um, but I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that we've, we've grown very, very quickly to meet the demand for this very specific population. That's super exciting. Um, but I think it's become challenging for the field as a whole to figure out then what's the best way to do this to ensure first and foremost, always that we are providing effective services um, and that the well-being of our clients and their families is always the, at the forefront of what we do because fundamentally we are a human services profession and we're in the business of, of helping people um, always. Yeah, the, the financial contingencies and the youth of our field is, is terrifying in terms of how big business is affecting autism treatment. I think you told us uh, or you presented somewhere that uh, there's a large number of BCBAs that are five, just five years into the field. 50%, this is Melissa Nosick presented this data from the BACB and this was current as of April 3rd of this year. 50% of our certificates have been certified for five years or less. That's very young. Yes. That's, you know, um, but to, I think, I don't know if you were looking at the questions because I I am right you, now. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you almost answered Liz's uh, without even knowing it. Uh, so I'm going to throw it out there because I don't think anyone can see it until we, we bring it up. 
Uh, Liz asks, how can we as a field go about protecting our employees and the quality of services for our clients? I've seen BHCOE and CASP come up with accreditations. However, it isn't a requirement for agencies uh, like how hospitals are required to be accredited. Uh, where is ABA going as a field to protect quality of services and employee protections with respect to this, unions, policy changes, and what can we do as employees and members of the field to help with, with progress? And I think the, the two things that, that you kind of talked about, or at least the one, was uh, the subspecialties. And I know that's been an ongoing debate and discussion within our field from all the way back into you know, the conception of the BACB. Uh, you can go back and, and read discussions in the literature about the pros and cons for, um, should we have certification at all? Should there be subspecialties? Should it be certification of specific procedures? Uh, and I think we need to explore that a little bit more. Uh, at least in terms, and maybe get some research behind it to see, is it actually addressing some of these challenges that are coming in with all of the private equity within this field? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that Liz asked like one question, but really it's 37 questions. Uh, and I'm also just giving her a little bit of crap because like I know her very well. And so Liz, I'm glad you're here, but also like, damn, you're making a girl sweat because now there's so many things to answer and unpack. Um, you know, do I think that our field is going to move towards a model where there is going to be both, because the problem with the, B, the BACB, or not a problem, but a limitation, I think is a better term, is this is a, the BACB regulates individual credential hold or certificate holders. They're not an organizational accreditation. And I think sometimes people get like mad at them because they don't understand what the, their, their credentialing body does and what they, they don't do. And I think sometimes people look to the BACB to be like the answer for all things. And I know that they've really been trying to come out, especially with some of the podcasts that they're doing and other information with being more clear about like, hey, <laughs> we do this, but we don't do these things because that's not part of our purview. Um, so I think there's some fundamental misunderstandings in the field in terms of the roles that credentialing bodies play versus accrediting bodies versus associations. Um, and there, I know that I've talked to a couple of people that might be having some papers that, in, that are going to be coming out in the literature that kind of explain more the roles of those different groups and how they intersect and what their responsibilities are. Um, so yeah, do I think that we will eventually move towards an environment um, in our field where there is going to be some type of organizational accreditation that is required um, in order to obtain funding from certain funding sources? Sure, that would likely make sense. Uh, for STE, we were CARF accredited, which is the Commission on Accreditation of Rehab Facilities, um, and BHCOE accredited, um, and those are both voluntary accreditations, but though they were things that we wanted to engage in because we thought that they would bring value to us in terms of how to, you know, serve our clients better, how to serve our staff better, how to create better systems, and how to maybe think about things that we hadn't thought about previously. The issue with those is these are these are not free, right? I mean, and, and right now people are doing this on a, a voluntary basis with the idea being that, hey, if there's some way for us to, to use these accreditations to be able to come, become a better business, to be able to potentially use this as um, a tool for recruiting, um, you know, better candidates because we're holding ourselves to a voluntarily higher standard, you know, this is, that's great. Um, but if we, I think, really want to look at how do we, you know, push that kind of quality of care conversation, um, that's likely going to come in the form of some type of regulation. I don't think that people are just going to voluntarily do it because it's the right thing, if that makes sense. And that's, and I think, you know, for big business or not big business, but like for venture capital, for private equity, 
I do believe that part of um, the appeal of the autism services sector, depending on the state um, that they are operating in, is the, you know, it's not super regulated at this point in our field. Um, and so I think it's more flexible for a business to be able to do certain things or not do certain things um, versus when you get into a field that has a lot more regulation because we are still developing those regulations. Yeah, well, and I think we need to be uh, aware of what happened with the the credentials that we currently have for individuals mm -hmm. and avoiding the pitfalls of that when we start talking about certifying agencies or accreditation for agencies or whatever that might look like. Uh, because right now we know, like you said, uh, we have certifications that are minimum standards are meant to be the floor, uh, yeah. but insurance companies are treating them like the gold standards in terms right. of reimbursement. So we need to make sure that we avoid that if we're going to take that as a route to solve some of these problems on an agency-wide basis. Yeah, and again, I just think, you know, it's, these are, it's, it's growth problems, right? And so we'll, you know, hopefully what we will continue to do in our industry is look at, um, you know, where are these, these weak spots and then how do we really kind of systematically address them? Um, but at the same time, you don't want to over-regulate a field so much that you put a chokehold um, and make it impossible for people to access services. And that's always been the sticking point here is where is that um, kind of sweet spot between wanting to be able to not create access issues, but also not wanting to allow for funding and also putting people, deploying people into a field that are, you know, woefully unprepared um, and may in fact do harm, um, which is like the scariest thought. Yeah, that, that road between um, flexibility and regulation is, is a difficult one. And I think we've, we've talked about that a lot in terms of uh, just application of behavior analytic services for those on the autism spectrum. Uh, and I can only imagine how tough it's going to be when we, when we try to scale that up and, and talk about it on a, like a field-wide basis. Yeah. Uh, because everyone's going to, to fight for their, well, it needs to be objective. Uh, and the more objective it gets, the less flexible it's going to be, uh, right. typically. Uh, so I think we, we definitely have our work cut out ahead of us. So I think the more people that can get involved in this and have these discussions is, is the best way for our field to move forward, uh, to take the last part of, of Liz's question. Uh, I think the, the more people we can incentivize to be having these discussions and to be looking at these problems and to be analyzing these contingencies, uh, the, the better for our field, especially yeah. with so many people coming into it right now. Right. And, and what I will say that a lot of private equity and, and you know, like the big business and that are interested in ABA can bring to the table are tremendous resources that your typical clinician owner just doesn't have access to. These are people that have usually a lot of healthcare experience and other, you know, healthcare specialties. Um, they have very large boards, you know, they have, you know, uh, huge networks um, and especially, you know, often are really great at leveraging technology to create efficiencies. And I think that uh, behavior analysis hasn't been able to really do that yet. Like, for example, I think there's wide open space in the area of using like augmented reality and virtual reality to help um, create more efficient training. Um, and there's some interesting groups that are, they're looking at that more like LA's K-Lab and CSUN is doing that. Um, I also like Behavior Me, um, Annie Escalante and Andy Chavez are doing some, some interesting work. Uh, and, and again, like that's where when you have like private equity involved, 
they, again, have these larger networks that are kind of thinking about these things differently because I think for behavior analysts, like I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but like we're not the only people on earth. And like there's people that have also scaled industries and in healthcare before and they've done it successfully. We're not a unicorn. Um, so where can we look into other disciplines that have done something right and how do we kind of take a page out of their playbook to do this efficiently for behavior analysis? And likely that would require some type of you know modification to fit our discipline um, but it's been done. Uh, so we, you know, just need to, I think, frankly, do a better job of kind of coalescing as a group in terms of what are the priorities for us. Um, and then looking, be willing to look outside of our own field to kind of get some, some help and perspective. And again, that's where I think big business could potentially really help because they have often more financial resources and networks, um, to help address like some of these, you know, scale issues and infrastructure issues. Yeah, I think that's, that's a wonderful point. And we tend to get criticized for not playing nice in the sandbox. Uh, and we're going to have to play nice in the sandbox if we want to solve some of these problems. No, or because... we're drowned in sand. So Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so we have another question that came in. And it's, it, it's a little bit of a pivot, but it fits yeah. within. Uh, so the, it's from an anonymous attendee. As a VCBA uh, looking for work, what are some red flags to separate the companies that are just in it for the payout versus those that are in it for uh, the work uh, when they don't have a huge online presence? Yeah, I mean, I, I think from what this uh, attendee is saying, I mean, sure, you know, companies that are venture capital PE backed have very large marketing budgets, right? And so they're gonna be able to run those Facebook ads, those Instagram ads, Google ads, they're gonna be able to do search engine optimization. So, you know, these groups, if you're searching for a job, you're like, God, why do I always see them first in Google? Why are they always the ones that are the first one in Indeed? There are so many reviews on Glassdoor. I see it all over LinkedIn because they have the money to do that. And, and that is a, a strategy. I mean, there's a lot of companies that will say, hey, we're willing to run, you know, a deficit on our marketing budget for four or five years because we understand that in the long term, if we can build up our profile and use this as a, you know, a primary mechanism to attract talent, then we're going to make it up down the road. Um, and that is commonly used in a lot of industries and definitely in behavior analysis. What I would say, um, some red flags to look for, um, I call this, uh, I'll call it my Sarah's triad of excellence in behavior analysis. And what I would suggest, and this is trademarked by me, so if you guys use this in the future, you just have to say trademark Sarah, and I'm, I'm gifting this trademark to you. Love it. Um, but what you wanna look for in a company that you potentially are seeking employment from are three things. You wanna make sure that they have uh, really, really strong um, clinical programs. And so how might you be able to evaluate that you, they should be able to have some outcome data of, of what they're doing. They should be able, people that you speak to within the organization should be able to be really clear about the type of standard assessments, the type of criterion reference assessments that are used, the way that uh, conversations are had in terms of, of dosage, um, talk about, you know, how, you know, relationships are developed with the stakeholders and, and families and, and funders, you know, there should be, you know, transparency in terms of who's doing what, um, regular team meetings, etc. So these are kind of like quality indicators in clinical, but you also want to look for uh, an organization that has a really strong training program. Um, and that training needs to occur in, in all staff levels. So it, that should be for RBTs, that should be for um, the BCBAs, and even in, also for the administration too. If you're in a human resource position, um, how are you continuing to obtain new skills? Are 
is your organization supporting you in getting like your SHRM certification, which is the Society of Human Resource Management. Uh, organizations that are focused on quality or organizations that are continually wanting to help better their employees to, to learn new things and to bring those new skills to bear in their organization. Um, that is an indicator of a high functioning organization. So you have that, you know, clinical quality, you have um, that big uh, training piece. Um, and then, you know, the other piece that, that I would really look at is are, is this organization somehow affiliated um, with some type of university program wherein, you know, they are helping to, you know, grow leadership for the field, both within this organization and perhaps out, outside of this organization. And I think organizations that have that alignment with, you know, universities um, have that great clinical work and then have that internal training mechanism that those three pieces to me uh, generally indicate um, an organization that is going to be focused on quality and they're really going to be dedicated to doing good work. Yeah, I love that Joe and Justin triad of uh, <laughs> trademark pending. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's, I think the outcomes, I, I had that note before you started talking about that. Is that something we should be looking for? Yes. In any company is what are the outcomes that you're, that you are achieving with your clients? Uh, yeah. and, that, and that does not mean that everyone has to be best outcome by the LOVA standard because that's, you know, a subset of learners who reach that standard. It means yeah. it's the best outcome for that learner, but it should be based, as you said, on those norm reference, the standardized measures. So it's just not like they learned 30 skills in a month or they learned 40 skills in a week or whatever. It's we want to, you should really be looking into, are they using assessments like the Vineland or cognitive assessments, social assessments like SSIS or the SRS and seeing what's happening there. I, I also love the training part of it. And so really looking is training uh, time-based. Are they just getting you in for 40 hours and kicking you out or is it- Or is it performance-based? Or yeah. is it performance-based, which is what it should be. You should not be working as a direct line staff or a supervisor until you can perform those duties. And I think the other things of red flags, and I don't know what, what you feel about this there is also if you're coming in is what's your case size if you're coming in as a supervisor? Are you having five cases, 10 cases, or are they gonna put you with 40 cases, which is unmanageable? Yeah. And also um, and also looking at, you know, how are bonuses tied in into what you're doing? Because I see sometimes a lot of times bonuses are just tied into arbitrary things, not on how good you are as a supervisor or your performance as a supervisor, but other kind of areas. So I think those are some things I also look for, uh, look, I would look for if I was looking for a job. Yeah, lots, lots of advertisements for, for BCBA positions include bonuses for increasing your caseload size. Um, so like there's financial incentives for continuing to add kids to your caseload, which we know uh, qu quality uh, doesn't always equal quantity and, and vice versa. So uh, to me, that's a huge red flag. I know, but I will also counterpoint that because I had that at STE. So we allowed people, um, but you had, but it was paired with uh, a clinical standards and uh, clinical competencies. So you had to qualify into being able to obtain bonuses for 
having additional um, billable hours for your caseload, but you had to maintain standards within our competency in terms of, you know, both on the clinical, but also administrative piece too, because part of what's happening a lot right now in, in ABA, especially for businesses that are very heavily invested in the healthcare sector, is there's a lot of administrative work and people, A, hate it, I get it, um, but B, I think it puts a lot of pressure on BCBAs to try to like be as efficient as possible um, with their you know billable time to try to bill as much as possible, knowing that they might have to also have a lot of this administrative work um, that they need to somehow fit into their day, and they don't want to be working for you know ninety five hours a day because that doesn't exist, right? Um, so yes, I think that that can be. I think it can potentially be a red flag, but again, what you're looking for, you know, again is like a more from a holistic perspective is. Are there, you know, financial incentives and performance-based incentives for me to be able to to make more money? But are there also these, you know, both qualitative and quantitative measures that they're looking at to ensure that the services that I'm providing and the clinical work that I'm doing is still great? Because part of the problem for businesses is, you know, businesses in order to pay you more money, they need to make more money, and that's just like basic math. So that's why you have so many of these systems in, and that's why we did that at, at STE, because of course I want to be able to pay my clinicians more, but it needs to be tied to revenue that's generated for this business, because most human services business, and especially autism services businesses, our margins are very thin. You know, we make very little on BCBAs. The majority of the, the money that organizations make are on RBTs. So it's that delta between what the RBTs paid and their benefits relative to what you're billing out for those hours. Um, so I also think that there you need to really kind of, you know, manage that the business aspect too and i do think there is a way to try to do both but that requires a lot of effort and requires a lot of oversight and then it requires a lot of you need to have quality assurance um and you need to have a quality insurance department um to really look at that oversight to make sure that there you don't have people that are kind of you know oh gosh kind of abusing this like hey i can access this money you know component here for billable hours but we're having this drift um, from their, you know, procedural integrity and treatment integrity because they're not maintaining, you know, appropriate clinical skills or they've overcommitted on hours, which means they're underperforming on, you know, clinical efficacy or quality measures. I think that's a, that's a wonderful point. And I think it, it speaks to, it's not just about the red flags, but it's about what questions you need to ask when you're interviewing to work somewhere. Uh, some, some of the best advice I've ever been given is when you go to a, to a job interview, not only are they interviewing you, but you're interviewing that company as well. And I think not a lot of people view it as a, this two-way street. It's bi-directional, yeah. Yeah, it's def definitely. It, it, you need to make sure that both are a good fit. And there's going to be some companies that think that you're a good fit, but you're not a good fit for that company. Uh, they're not much they're, they're they don't align with your values and your goals in terms of your professional career and I think you highlighted how important it is to have the right questions to ask so when you do see things like that it's all right what so what's associated with this bonus or what's associated with this uh, in the job description uh, to make sure that there's those balances there that are ensuring quality while they're also you know making sure that their employees are happy and paid well so I, I want to transition a little bit, and you can answer this question in terms of big business or any which way you want to answer it. Okay. But overall, where do you see the field today? Like, what is good? What do you see is bad? And what are your thoughts about the future of our field? Um, where I see the, the field today, I love that there are so many people that have a lot of energy and passion for behavior analysis. I mean, I think the three of us know that you know, this can be, uh, when applied, you know, well, can be a life-changing, a life-changing um, life uh, opportunity for people to be able to access um, effective treatment, whether you have autism or you have Tourette's syndrome or you're looking to do some type of like habit reversal 
or you want to work on, you know, managing your own self in terms of, of alcohol consumption, or you want to work with people in, in gerontology. I mean, there's, you know, or from an organizational behavior management standpoint, there's so many applications of what we do. Um, but obviously most of our field is distributed into the autism sector because that is where jobs are and that's where the money and funding is. Um, and so I celebrate the, the growth in our field um, and the fact that so many people have felt like this is a, a meaningful career where they get to do something that they feel like has an impact uh, on people, but they can also have a job and, and, and make a living. And, and I, I love that. Um, where I see our field going is I'm very interested in broader applications of behavior analysis that extend beyond um, autism, just because I, again, I do believe in the power of, of what we do. And I think that we can, you know, there's so much great history we have, whether it's, um, you know, from Skinner to Mont Wolf uh, to, there's, there's so many people that have written about like how we can use behavior analysis to affect social change, how we can use behavior analysis to build, you know, the whole idea like Walden too, can we use behavior analysis to really build and create better lives for pe just people, a better life uh, experience uh, by using the, the best of our science. Um, can, you know, we use behavior analysis to treat, you know, broader disorders, you know, there's been some great efficacy in terms of, you know, depression, anxiety, obviously the family teaching model um, that Mott Wolf pioneered um, and that's been used in Boys Town has been a great way to really have, you know, incredible trauma or care for trauma people that have experienced trauma um, using this model that is like, hey, we're hitting you hard in this like incredible reinforcing environment 24 hours a day um, by making sure that we, you know, you're in this teaching family home with people that have incredible um, skills that are all behavior analytic based, you know, like it, this it's our science. So there's, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Um, and I, and again, I love the work that we've done in autism, but I'd love to see us expand beyond that because I think right now, so many people only associate ABA with autism and they think that this is, these are synonymous. And I think that that's actually, you know, selling the science of what we do short and we could do more. Um, so I'd like to see expansion of that. And as it relates to kind of big business and, and autism specifically, I think that we'll continue to see a consolidation in our market. And I think you're going to continue to see pressure, especially from healthcare payers um, in terms of rate reduction. Um, uh, and there's going to be, you know, we're going to get squeezed on the margins. And so it's going to really force our field to continue to be more efficient. I think we're going to have to look more at standardization of our practice, um, really looking at outcomes, you know, will we move more to a value-based payment system, which is something that's been important, you know, in the, for CMS, like, yes, eventually I think that will happen. Um, a lot of this is largely going to depend on the outcome of the election. Uh, and if there are still kind of, you know, um, threats to the the Affordable Care Act and the expansion of, of Medicaid. I, I think there's a lot of things that are up in the air, um, but mostly I think we you know we really need to put in some time and thought into the infrastructure that supports our you know rapidly growing field, and then um, the indices of quality both at an individual organizational level, um, and really how to help both you know practitioners and consumers and funders discriminate between what is good and what is not good.
I, I love the point about the wide application of behavior analysis, because I think that's kind of been lost across the years uh, for some for a wide variety of reasons. I think that could be a whole rant on its own. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, it makes me like I, I love the point that big business could actually help us there because of the resources that they could bring in, uh, because everyone tends to follow the money. Uh, weird, weirdly enough, uh, we need to make our livelihoods, right? We need to live, sure. we need a, a roof, we need all of that. And right now, a lot of the money is in autism interventions. So yes. that's why the majority of certified behavior analysts work in that field. It'd be nice if we could get some big business to bring in some resources and some financial incentives to apply behavior analysis to the wide variety of different things that we could actually be helpful and useful for. And, and you know, Sure, like Meg Heineke, who is a professor at Sac State, I mean, she's done a ton of work in the brain injury um, sec sector, and brain injury is called, it's called the silent epidemic. I think there's like 10 million people in the United States that experience brain injury, whether um, that's acquired or through like an anoxic event or, or whatever, and we're just kind of starting to look at that application of behavior analysis in the guise of like more kind of interdisciplinary teams as part of a treatment package to really help these individuals. I think that is fascinating. Um, and again, I think looking more broadly and I think, you know, Al Poling has done some great work on this. Uh, Pat Freiman has done some great work on this. The uh, application of behavior analysis, looking at more anxiety and depression. You obviously have Steve Hayes, Kelly Wilson, and all of the ACT people that have really looked at how can we use ACT, you know, to help people uh, with mental health issues. Um, and, you know, people I need to think now, what I notice a lot in practices is people really trying to kind of combine like ACT and ABA, even though like it's all ABA, but okay. Um, to really kind of look at how we approach, uh, you know, dealing with um, some of the challenges that we have with uh, the clients that we serve, with the families that we serve. Also how we kind of approach how we deal with ourselves uh, and you know, how do we prevent burnout, for example, um, looking at the idea of like compassionate care. I love uh, you know, the article by um, uh, Bridget Taylor, Linda LeBlanc and Melissa Nosek. I mean, I quote it all the time. And there's like, you know, also then obviously in the last six months, there's been a lot of talk in terms of what are, how can behavior analysis really help dealing with you know, issues of inequity and social justice. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's like so many cool things uh, that we can do, but I also understand that like people need, you know, like we would all, I mean, if I could do whatever I wanted, I have to worry about money, I would likely raise like a farm of like French bulldogs um, and just like do talks like these all the time and just spend time with most of you guys all day long. But like, I have, you know, again, ungrateful children that need food and stuff. Um, so I have to make a living too. But I think it's also really important for people to understand this is where this relationship between research and academia and practice becomes so important. Um, you need to have that research foundation and that research base to show the efficacy of the our work in some specific discipline. And then you have to tie that into funding and legislation. And then you need to be able to train people in the applied setting to be able to carry it out. And so these are there's these synergistic relationships. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of people that are starting to ask these questions more like, okay, who do we need to know or how do we collaborate more to show efficacy of our work um, in, you know, to address other kind of, you know, problems of social significance. I think this has been a great talk, Sarah. I think uh, very fascinating considering that I'm one that never really thinks about business or big business as I'm, I guess, just more the academic person at this point. Mm -hmm. a researcher and just thinking about intervention. So thank you so much uh, for coming on to our podcast and doing a little ranting with us. We, we miss seeing you uh, at the various conferences and uh, look forward to when we can do that uh, again. 
I, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's going to be anytime soon, but that's okay. I will happily, you know, uh, put on like my zoom filter and some red lipstick. If that means I get to like spend some time with you guys, even if it's over a computer any day of the week. And so I also found it interesting. You're talking about your other job, which would be raising French bulldogs because I came up with the job that I would do, which was, what was the name of it, Joe? You came up with the name. The wine parlor. The wine parlor. It would be a combination of a wine store and ice cream parlor. Oh. Yeah, you could have like rosé gelato. Yeah, we could have a lot of that. And so I've been talking about this week, uh, other, other careers I would be doing, which would, you know, be fun as well. Can I ask you guys a question really fast? Yep. Why did you guys decide to start this podcast? Like, what was the impetus? So the, I think this started at Calaba uh, after, or right after Calaba, uh, where, uh, you know, Calaba happened and then things were- Or getting, didn't happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> where things were getting shut down and Joe and I just missed uh, talking and seeing each other and having these kind of conversations. So these con conversations would happen in our office regularly. Yeah. It happened over lunch with uh, people like uh, Julia Ferguson, yeah. uh, Christine Milne, and Joe and I would discuss this, these different topics uh, at nauseum, and we felt, you know, this would be an interesting way to uh, continue those conversations, and our original thought was it would just be Joe and I, and then every other week we would have uh, a friend or a colleague or a guest come. So far, they've all been friends, colleagues, and guests. I uh, come and uh, talk with us, and then we really just liked talking to other people. We miss seeing other people. We felt this would just be a way to help uh, that connection at the same time educate uh, BCBAs on what's going on in the field and topics that we're concerned about or that we think about or that we have in our periphery view. Yeah. Or want to learn more about, like the nice thing about bringing guests on, it, it, people like you get to bring your expertise that we don't have uh, and really have a, a much better discussion than just Justin and I could have about big business. Uh, that's not our area of specialty. So having people come on where it is their specialty allows us to, you know, rant a little bit on that as well. Yeah. And then, well, we, were, and then we were convinced to make it a podcast. <laughs> I know. I really have enjoyed podcasting. Um, it's been really fun. And again, I think part of this, you know, and I kind of figured that your answer would involve this. It's almost a selfish endeavor because we're all people that really want to be connected with each other. And so how do we find something that allows us to do that, but then also hopefully, you know, bring important information, you know, maybe thought provoking ideas um, at the same time. And so I really, I'm, I'm glad you're doing this. And I, and I do think the podcasting can be a, a great, way you know to both for us personally to have that connection but then also to really continue to share um our our thoughts with a, a broader audience and i think that this is where a lot of conferences like you know i think people don't realize like that's great you can go to a conference and speak at a conference and maybe you have an audience of 100 or 200 or if it's you're at a big conference three or 400 people but the potential range that you can have on a, a podcast or using video is actually far greater um, and so I think I would really encourage more people in our field to, to be doing this, um, because yeah, I mean like conferences are fun, but if this is a, a place where literally like anyone, you can reach anybody in the world. Uh, and so like do that more and I'm, I'm glad you guys are doing this. Thanks. Uh, yeah, Thank it's been a fun endeavor. So our next rants, uh, will be not for the podcast people, but for the live people will be election day. We're gonna take a little break from the chaos of the election and uh, maybe have a little less uh, stress on election days. I'm sure 
millions of people are going to be stressed and we'll be having Dr. Tom Zane come and uh, speak about one uh, worldview to rule them all. So I'll have a Lord of the Rings background, I guess, on that day. And remember that this is free, uh, except unless you want to use, but we always encourage if people have the means, have the resources to donate to Autism Partnership Foundation. It does a lot um, of good for a lot of people, including our free RBT training that has over 102,000 people have. That like blows my mind, it <laughs> blows my mind. I've been so proud of you guys for that. Like every day, I mean, it, like when that video launched, I was like, is anyone gonna watch this shit? And they did. <laughs> they did, they did. They crashed our servers multiple times. I know, that I was upgrade. like, what an awesome problem to have. Uh-huh. And we do, you know, research, which helps, I hope uh, a lot of people when they read it and find best practices to implement with autism. So if you can, we'd always appreciate any donation uh, to Autism Partnership Foundation. And with that, I'll turn it over to Joe for the closing word. The closing word is rigidity. So uh, I'll go ahead and throw that in the chat box for everyone. So again, if you want CEUs for this, go to www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast, uh, enter the uh, opening word, which was avoid, and the closing word is rigidity. Uh, throw the rant into your cart and you have your CEU. So Sarah, thank you so much for coming. I, it, uh, wonderful. I think every time each rant tops the last one. Uh, I'm going to tell him that he said that since his was the last rant. I'm going to brag to him that I I ranted I ranted it up. Yeah, uh, I I mean we didn't see him putting on his makeup or come <laughs> with like hair that you know so. Awesome. Well, well, like I said, you know, I mean, I love you both dearly, and you're not only my colleagues, you are my friends. Um, but this is also something you know that I think is really interesting and. We need to have continue open discussions about because I think a lot of behavior analysts don't understand a lot of the contingencies involved in business um, and we need an informed uh, group of practitioners in order to really continue to move this field forward. Mm -hmm. Well said. Oh. Well thanks everyone for coming for Rants with Justin and Joe. Wear masks. <laughs> Wear Wash mask. your hands. Vote. Yes vote. Yeah for real. Okay. Bye, you guys. Bye. Bye.